Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to Podcastage. Today I'm back with a review of the brand new audio interface from Apogee, the boom! The big bada boom! If you are in... <laughs> If you are interested in this audio interface, it will cost you around $300. Like always, I'll throw some affiliate links in the description down below. Also, in the sake of full disclosure, I do need to let you know that Apogee sent me this audio interface free of charge for the sake of making this review. Also, for this review, I am running the Rode NT1 directly into the Apogee Boom. 48 volts phantom power on, gain set at 26 dB. We are recording at 24-bit, 48 kilohertz. I will not do any kind of post-processing, but I may have to boost it a little bit in post, so make sure to check the doobly-doo to see what I diddly did. And now, let's talk about what comes in the box. What a big surprise, you are going to get the audio interface. You'll get an approximately one meter or three foot USB-C to USB-A or USB-C cable. It converts. It has a little converter from USB-A to USB-C. How cool is that? And you'll get a little bit of documentation. Then as far as the build quality, I don't have any massive complaints about this thing. It does have an all metal chassis, but the faces on the interface are going to be made out of plastic. The XLR port feels very good and firm, but it does have the ever so slightest amount of wiggle to it, but nothing to be concerned with. The control dial on the front is also nicely attached. When you rotate it, you get a little bit of click to it. And then when you press it, you get some really nice tactile feedback. And on the rear of the device, the USB-C port does have quite a bit of wobble to it, which feels out of the ordinary, and it doesn't really instill confidence. And finally, if it does matter to you, this audio interface is made in China. Now we're going to walk through the physical features of this audio interface. On the front, you're going to find an XLR quarter-inch combination jack for microphone, line, or instrument-level inputs. Then you'll find a quarter-inch input, which is only for line-level or instrument-level inputs. You'll find a very basic meter as well as a clip indicator light. Then you'll find five bluish or purplish lights. The first three will indicate what you're adjusting with the control dial. The last two, titled FX1 and FX2, will let you know if the DSP processing is turned on for channel 1 or channel 2. And as I already alluded to, you have the control dial, which you will press to change what you're adjusting with the dial, and you will actually rotate the dial to adjust that specific input or the outputs. Then we have a very simple rear of the audio interface. The first thing we have is the USB-C port. This is what you'll use to power the device and connect it to your computer or iOS device. You have a Kensington lock system in case you're concerned with your device being stolen. You have a quarter-inch headphone output, and then a set of balanced quarter-inch studio monitor outputs. Then as far as the specs, this interface records at 24-bit up to 192 kilohertz. The preamps have an EIN of negative 128 dBU non-weighted. A weighting that figure would improve it, so that is a very good reading. The max gain on the preamp is 62 dB, you have 48 volts of phantom power, and in case you want to dive a little bit deeper, here are some other specs. You can pause the video if you want to read any of them more in depth. Then a quick note on the headphone output. 
I found it perfectly capable of driving hard-to-drive headphones like the Sennheiser HD650s, but when I did connect some IEMs, these are the Shure SE215s, I'm sure somebody's cringing, I did hear a bit of underlying hiss. Now like we always do, in order to really test out the preamps, I am running the Shure SM7B directly into the Apogee Boom. My gain is set at 52 dB, and this is the level we're getting. We're hitting around negative 9 dB because I am a loud talker. I will be quiet so you can hear the preamp noise at this setting. Getting loud in three, two, one. I always hate doing this, but if you're a quiet talker and you're a little bit farther away from the microphone, now I have increased my gain to 62 dB. This is the maxed gain, max gain on the preamp. We are hitting around negative 12 dB. I'll be quiet so you can hear the noise at this setting. in three two one and there you go that is the sure sm7b test far away whispering gain maxed out now i'm going to connect a 150 ohm resistor to the microphone input we'll slowly increase the gain so we can see what kind of preamp noise this thing actually has Right here I am testing out the line input capabilities of this interface. I'm running the Rode NT1 through the Warm Audio WA73EQ outboard preamp. Then I am running that line level plus 4dBU into the second input of this device. Seems to be functioning perfectly. No issues, no interference, no excessive noise, no clipping. It is performing exactly as a plus 4 dBU line level input ought to. So in case you need to use a secondary microphone, you would need to use an outboard preamp and then run line level into the second input. But there you go, just a quick demo, does function as it should be. Then as far as the latency with the sample rate set at 48 kilohertz and the I.O. buffer size at 64 samples, we have a 4.5 millisecond output latency or a 9 milliseconds round trip latency. Jumping to 128 samples, we have 5.5 milliseconds output or 11.5 milliseconds round trip. And jumping up to 256 samples, we have 8.5 milliseconds output or 17 milliseconds round trip. And then with the sample rate set at 192 kilohertz and the I.O. buffer at 64, we have 3.3 milliseconds output or 7 milliseconds round trip. At 128 samples, we have 3.7 milliseconds output or 7.5 milliseconds round trip. And at 256 samples, we have 4.3 milliseconds output or 9 milliseconds round trip. Next, in order to test the instrument DI input, I'm going to run an electric guitar, an electric bass, and an acoustic guitar directly into this. I will play the instrument's raw, just DI signal, then I'll add an amp simulator, and then I will play a full mix.
All right, we're going to do a very quick walkthrough of the Apogee Control 2 software. This is not going to be a full tutorial. On the left-hand side of the window, you'll see a ready icon. This lets you know that the device you have connected is plugged in, getting power, and ready to start working. Beneath that, you have the ability to select what device you're adjusting with the Control 2 software. So if you have multiple Apogee devices, this is where you would select what device you want to control. Beneath that, you have a drop-down for the sample rate of the interface. You can change from 44.1 up to 192 kilohertz. I do video, so I pretty much stay at 48K. And beneath the sample rate, we have the ability to set the duration for a peak hold or an overhold in our meters. Currently, we're set at two seconds, and for example, and then it clears. And if we change peak and overhold to infinite and clap again, that meter will stay illuminated until we click on it to clear it. There you go. And the last option that you have in this column is to turn on or off the mixer view for the control software. Next in this column titled inputs, we have one thing that we can adjust titled channel view. If we click on this, this allows us to select what channels we want to see in the Control 2 software. So if you don't want to see the digital inputs or playback, if you only want to see input 1, you can go ahead and do that and simplify what you're seeing. This is really going to come into play if you have a larger Apogee interface where you have 20 or 30 inputs and you don't want to see all of them on screen at once. Then we have the channel strips for our two inputs. The first item in the channel strip is going to be a meter for that specific input. This is followed by the input selection dropdown. For channel one, we're able to select mic level input, plus four dBU or minus 10 dBV line level or instrument input. On channel two, since that only has a quarter inch input, we're only able to select line level or instrument input. Next, we have the ability to turn on the pad for each individual channel. When you have the microphone input selected, you get a negative 10 dB pad. For example, now I am talking and now I am down negative 10 dB. Let me go ahead and disengage that. When we have a channel set to instrument, if we hit the pad button, this will change the impedance of the input. When the pad button is not pressed, it has a one milliohm impedance. When we turn it on, I believe it's 3.2 kiloohms, which is what you would want to use for more of a keyboard if you're plugging in. Next on the channel strip, you have your gain dial. This allows you to turn up or down the gain for that specific input. Next, you have the ability to turn on or off the DSP processing for that channel. For example, I already have my EQ and compressor set. This is what it would sound like. Gonna go ahead and turn it off. We'll dive into that a little bit later. Then on channel one, you have a 48 volts phantom power button. You have a phase inversion button in case you have some kind of phase cancellation. And then you have this button right here, which will tie the gain of channel one and channel two. So for example, let me go ahead and hit this and then I will increase channel two. You will see that when I increase channel two to five, the gain on channel one went up to 55. If I drop channel two back down to zero, my gain on channel one went back down to 50. I'll go ahead and disengage that because I don't need it. Next, we have our mixer window. This allows us to adjust what we hear in our headphones or through the speakers. And any adjustment that we make down here is going to be reflected in our mixer master meter. That's really hard to say. For example, if I pan channel one left, 
you can see the mixer meter is going to show that we only have audio in the left. We'll go ahead and center that again. If I turn down channel one, now you can't hear me or you can still hear me, but you can't see me in the mixer meter. You get how that works. Then you have the ability to mute a channel, you have the ability to solo a channel, or you have the ability to stereo link input one and two if you have a keyboard or any kind of stereo input that you're running into both channels. When you do this, it automatically pans mic input one to the left, channel two to the right, and the gains are going to be tied together. When you click on stereo link again, it unpairs the channels and now they are independent again. Then you have two virtual faders for playback. The way that I would use this is have system audio playing back through playback one, two. Then I would be able to control that with this first fader. And then for my DAW, I would have that outputting to playback three, four. And then I'd be able to control that with this secondary fader. And the last fader we have here is going to be our master bus fader. So as I bring this down, our mixer meter should be decreasing when I bring it back up our meter ought to be increasing. As I already alluded to, this is going to be our mixer master meter. This will indicate what the mixer is outputting. Then we have our headphone output meter and our speaker output meter. Currently, all of these meters are identical because I am outputting the mixer to the headphone output and my speaker output. But if I wanted to change that, I would go to the headphone section, which is HP, or the speaker section, SP, click on the drop-down menu, and change the source that I am routing to that specific output. For me, the mixer output is the most helpful because I like being able to mix between my zero latency monitoring and computer playback. That's just the easiest for me, but you could route any of these to an output. You could have playback one, two, playback three, four, the mixer output, or have analog input one, analog input two, or the stereo set of the analog inputs going to the headphones or the speakers. Then you have the volume control for that specific output. You can turn headphones up or down. You're able to mute that specific output in case you want to shut off all monitoring. You can dim that output in case you want to attenuate the signal a little bit, or you're able to select the Sigma icon and this down mixes the output to a mono in case you want to check for phase issues on a stereo mix. Then we have the main output section. Currently, I have this set to variable because I don't have a volume control for my studio monitors. I want to be able to control that with the output dial for the actual interface. But if I click on this, you can see that you are able to set the output to be a fixed output in case you're running to a set of monitors that have a dedicated volume control. Then you have the main output level for the quarter inch monitor outputs on the rear of the interface. I have this set to plus four dBU because that's what my monitors require. But if you need negative 10 dBV line level for a set of studio monitors that are more consumer focused, you have that available to you. Again, you have a drop down menu to select what you're routing to the speaker outputs. This means you can have a different output to the headphones and the monitors if you need that. You have the exact same controls after that. Turn your monitors up or down in the software, mute, attenuate with the dim, or down mix to mono. 
And here is a quick look at the iPad app because this is compatible with iOS and it still has all the same functionality. You can control both of the inputs. Both inputs have the DSP processing. And a quick note, my DSP processing settings transferred over from my iMac to my iPad just by plugging in the Apogee Boom to my iPad. So it was stored on the actual device. We'll close out of that. If we scroll over, we're able to adjust the speaker output and the headphone output. If we tap on the mixer icon, we have access to all of the faders for our mixer. Everything is the exact same as the desktop app. It's just laid out in a slightly different fashion. So there you go. That is the iPad app in case you want to use the boom with your iOS device. And the final thing we're going to look at here is the DSP processing. First thing you can do is hit the power button. This turns on or off the DSP processing and prints it to your recording. Or if you just hit this power button again, now you can't monitor it and it is not being captured. But let's go ahead and hit the power button again. And then I will click on the effects icon next to that. And this will open up our channel strip. And this is the processing that we have available to us. This is a three band EQ, low, mids, and high band. We also have a variable high pass filter from 20 hertz to 300 hertz. You can adjust what the high pass is doing, whether it is going to be the EQ or if you are using it to side chain the compressor. On that note, we do have a compressor. You're able to adjust the threshold or where the compressor is engaged. You can adjust the ratio. I'm trying to use this more as a limiter, so I have it set at a ratio of 10 to one, but you also have five to one or three to one. You also have a mix dial, so you can go ahead and get, I think it's New York style compression, where you have the dry signal mixed with the compressed signal in case you want to do that. You have a gain reduction meter. You can see I am just barely tapping on this, but if I get really loud, you can see we get a lot of compression. Also, you're able to adjust the signal flow a bit more. You can change whether you were doing the EQ prior to the compressor or compressing and then running into the EQ. And the last effect that we have is drive or saturation. So if I wanted to get some nastiness, just grime up my recording, I can turn this all the way up and get that distortion, get that analog style saturation. For spoken word, I'm not going to use that, but if you're doing music and want to get that really aggressive sound, you have that at your disposal. The last option that you have here is your output level in case you need to do some kind of makeup gain. You can crank this up and you get up to 20 decibels of additional gain. You also have a couple of presets for different sound sources, drums, acoustic guitar, bass, electric guitar, keys, vocals all that kind of stuff in case you want to jump off from a preset that they provide you. And those are all the effects that you get with the DSP processing. That is the only channel strip you have. So if you find that useful, there you go. If you don't find it useful, that's what you're getting. All right, I think that it's undeniable that the $300-ish audio interface market is extremely crowded with stuff like the Focusrite Vocaster 2, the UA Volt 276, the SSL 2 Plus, or the Audient ID14, 
but I think the Apogee boom does have some differentiating factors that sets it apart from the competition. And first up as far as pros, the preamp on this thing has plenty of clean gain even for the SM7B. The A to D and D to A conversion on this sounds outstanding, which is what you would expect from Apogee. The Control 2 software was also really handy, mainly the mixer. I liked being able to adjust the zero latency monitoring, the DAW playback, and my computer system audio. I found that incredibly handy. You also get all of the software for iOS, which is something that you don't typically get. And the final pro is probably going to be the main selling point for this device, the DSP processing. You get that channel strip, which has EQ, compression, and a bit of saturation if you want to make the recording sound a little bit more interesting. And then as far as cons, the biggest issue that I ran into was the fact that you can only run to the studio monitors or the headphones. You can only send the audio to one of those outputs at a time. When you connect your headphones to the headphone output, no signal gets sent to your studio monitors, and when you unplug your headphones, the studio monitors will come back to life. I think a good workaround here would be having some kind of button or switch in the control software to toggle between what output you're sending to, whether it's your headphones or the studio monitors, because currently having to unplug and plug the headphones back in makes it a bit of an inconvenience. The second con for me is on the input section, and there's a reason that I made it con number two. All of the competition has two microphone preamps, while the Apogee Boom only has a single microphone preamp. The reason I think that's a con is a lot of people looking at this price of audio interface are going to want to have the capability of running two microphones at the same time, whether it be a stereo microphone set, whether you are doing some kind of microphone for vocals and acoustic guitar, whether you want to do a stereo microphone setup for the acoustic guitar. Having that second microphone input in addition to the DSP processing would really set it apart from a lot of the competition. Then we get to a bit more of the nitpicky stuff. Like I always say, I would love to have a physical on-off button on the audio interface. And lastly, when I'm adjusting the preamp gain on the physical device, there's no light indicator on the meters. I would love to have some kind of indication what my gain is being set to on the actual meter. And to wrap up, would I recommend the Apogee Boom? Both yes and no. Let's start with a no. If you need two microphone preamps and a portable audio interface, no. You obviously do not have two microphone preamps. There is a workaround by running an outboard preamp, but that kind of defeats the purpose of having such a small and portable audio interface. But on the other hand, like I already alluded to, a lot of the Boom's competition does have a little bit of processing like compression or a little bit of EQ or saturation, but all of them are pretty much set in stone. You have very minimal options if you want to adjust that. So if you want to have the ability to adjust the EQ, to adjust the compression, or adjust the amount of saturation that you're sending to your microphone or your line level input or instrument input, I think that's where the Apogee Boom really sets itself apart from the competition because you can't really do that with any of these interfaces that I have. The Audient ID4, the Volt 276, the SSL2 Plus, or the Focusrite Vocaster 2. All right, that is it for this video. I got nothing else for you. If you found this video fun, interesting, or helpful, 
go ahead and give me a thumbs up. If you hated it, big ol' thumbs down. If you do want more videos like this, go ahead and hit that subscribe button, and do not forget to hit that bell icon. If you want to hang out in a Discord server and talk about audio all day, go check out podcastage.com discord. And if you want to support the channel and become one of these amazing people over here, you can do so by clicking that join button or going to patreon.com slash podcastage and joining at the $5 tier or higher. It really does help me continue to bring you these videos. So until next time, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. You are amazing. I love you. Talk to you in a week or so. Bye-bye. Whoop.